A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Two Jewish history soundbites. This is another episode with uh, Jew, with uh, this is you together with another episode of Jewish history soundbites, and this episode is sponsored Lezecher Nishmas Avraham Ben Moshe Shloima, and in honor of his yard site. And um, this is also a reminder that you can sponsor an episode or a series, and you also, if you sponsor, you can have a little bit of input into the content. You can help choose the topic. So we're looking forward to hearing from you about that as well. And for the few of you who have not yet bought your valuable Jewish literature, whether it's forum or books at the YU forum sale, make sure to head up to the Heights and pick up your forum before the sale is over. There's more people than ever going, and some of the listeners have told us that they've gotten some very good acquisitions. Today's uh, episode is a special Yardside episode, long in the making, uh, looking forward to this one, you know, um, that I have my biases to the mirror at this point. And there's a very special Yardside tonight of Rabinyamin Benish Finkel, the Mira Shiva, legendary Mira Shiva, and it's his 30th Yardside, so it's a good round number to go ahead and tell a few stories um, of him. When I was in the Mir Yeshiva, it was obviously long after Rabbeinish had passed away, but there was quite a few people who remembered him there and uh, heard quite a few stories over the years. And Rabbeinish was so unique and so legendary that some of his stories are actually more in the realm of legend than in reality. But even those stories are valuable because they really bring out his character and personality. But almost all the stories are actually 100% true and verified and eyewitnessed and um, start off with a really classic Rabbeinish story that most people have heard, but it really brings us into the personality who Rabbeinish was. He, his sheer clullies were very unpopular. He used to say them in a very monotone voice because he didn't want to impress anyone with oratory skills, but rather with the content. And uh, people found them boring. You know, a lot of people didn't know him. He never davened in yeshiva. He davened vasikin at the kaisel every morning. Um, he spent a lot of time um, not in yeshiva, taking care of a lot of yeshiva business and 
his home was in Meisharim, and he was a very hidden person in general, which I'm going to get to. So when he came for his Shir Klali once a week in the main base medrash of the yeshiva, which was the only base medrash, by the way, then, um, it's actually under his watch that the yeshiva grew. In fact, if you measure things in percentage, um, the yeshiva, Mir Yeshiva grew under his tenure, under his leadership, more than in any other period in its history, to the best of my knowledge. It grew over 10 times the amount, over, I guess we'll call it a thousand times growth. It was a hundred plus guys when he took over the yeshiva in 1965. And when he died in 1990, 25 years later, it was well over 1,200 uh, Talmidim in the yeshiva. So, you know, if you quantify that growth in, in percentages, it really is a phenomenal uh, growth. Um, so he comes into Shir Klali, and the way the story goes, there's a new guy in the yeshiva, a new boy in the yeshiva who had just arrived from America, and he was told by his friends, you know, when they announced that Rabbeinish is giving a Shir Klali, you leave. You don't want to stick around for that. Uh, you know, that's that you leave. And uh, so Rabbeinish is coming in, and as he's coming in, lots of people are streaming out, and and he he sees this kid, this new guy, running out. So he says to him, "Vuleifstu, where are you running?" So he didn't recognize Rabbeinish, and Rabbeinish was a very funny personality. He had a unique sense of humor, so he liked playing these types of games with people. And he says, he says to him, to where are you running? So the guy says to him, Hostinish Kehert, Rabbeinish is Zegeb Nashir Kloli. You didn't hear? Rabbeinish is giving a Shir Kloli. So Rabbeinish says to him, if that's the case, run faster. You know, run if he's giving a Shir. And that's, that really brings out who he was and what type of person he was. Um, he was very different. He was very unique. I remember Rabari Finkel, um, um, he gave a shmuz every year on his yard site, and a couple of times I even went to attended the shmuz. And I remember one thing he emphasized was that he, everything that Rabbeinish did was completely bahalten. Everything was hidden. It was completely behester. He said that we we knew him, we were close to him, we really had no idea what he was about. In other words, even someone like Rabbi Finkel, who was quite close with him close member of his family, he was his uncle, and um, he didn't know him, didn't know him, and he was like that. He really, really kept himself uh, hidden and quiet away from people and always tried to be out of the limelight. He was born in the Mir to his father, Ablazer Yudel Finkel, and he grew up in the atmosphere of the Mir, the grandson of the Altus Labatka, and that really was... A, a legacy in the family to a certain extent. The altar of Slabatka himself was like that in Slabatka. He, Ramasan Finkel, the original one, he kept, uh, you know, very, his ways were hidden. He didn't explain himself. He kept behind the scenes and, and, uh, and, and everything done in a quiet way, in a modest way, and, and hiding, hiding behind himself even, you know, keeping, making sure that people didn't really understand what he was doing and and uh, you know hiding his learning and his his uh, his accomplishments and that was something that really Rabbeinish kept to uh, as well and Rabbeinish added to that is that he had a phenomenal sense of humor and he was a really 
Um, and really an exciting and warm person. The people who described him being an amazing people person, got along with people, amazingly helpful to people. He was very particular about, um, one of the many things he was particular about was it was, was uh, being careful with monetary transactions, that he shouldn't come to pay interest, uh, God forbid, about on anything that he was borrowing. And he would very often be at the bank. He himself would go at the bank and wait online and for his turn to take care of yeshiva business. And one of the things he would do at the bank when he would go several times a week was that he would help the beggars, the schnarrers of Yerushalayim. And these beggars had small change. They were, they were, they were schnarrers. People gave them small change. And they couldn't, they, you know, they felt very embarrassed going to stores and paying with things in pennies. And in those days uh, it was, um, I don't even know, in Poland, it was Grushin. I don't remember what it was in Israel in the early days, uh, but but with uh, with small change, and it was embarrassing. So they would come to the bank to change their money, but at the bank, not only were they embarrassed to change their money at the bank, also into larger bills, but the bank got fed up with it because you had to sit there and count it and organize it. People are waiting online, and Israeli banks, as other offices till today, are legendary for their long lines. So you could just imagine how how much more frustrating it is when there's a couple of schnars online and the teller has to start counting out the change. But Rabbeinish was a good customer. He, he, he did a lot of the yeshiva, all the yeshiva work there. He was friendly with the tellers. They liked him. And also he was a good, you know, big customer. A lot of money went through the Mir Yeshiva's hands. So what Rabbeinish would do is he would take the change from these schnars and he would bring it to the teller, and he would change it for them. And then they couldn't refuse him. They were, you know, they helped Urbanish, and then they would say, "Okay, what else do you need? I assume you came for your own business as well." And um, and that's how he helped these these beggars of Yerushalayim. In fact, one of those beggars, what, I don't know about from the bank, but another beggar in Yerushalayim was an elderly Sephardi woman who used to uh, beg by the kaisel every morning in the rain and in the sun. And Rabbeinish would would schmooze with her. He would stop on the way in or on the way out, and he would tell her jokes and make her laugh and bring some light to her day. This you know poor woman, and she he, she never realized that he was Rabbeinish, that he was the Mirashiva, Rabbeinish Davin Vasikin at the Kaisel every morning, and he just would you know would go and and try to lighten up the day for this lady. And during the shiva for Rabbeinish, this lady came in towards the end of shiva, very distraught, and she said. Did this the one who you're sitting shiva for was he a tall man with a white beard, which describes about half of your slime? But she described him in a way that he that they figured out who he was talking about. He said, "I can't believe that he died. I never realized he was the mirror shiva. He was just a nice old man who made my life worth living, and he used to come and comfort me every day and uh, and make jokes and make me laugh. And he hasn't come the last few days." And I didn't realize what happened. And then there were these signs that the Mira Shiva died, and I didn't put two and two together until at some, at some point I figured it out. I asked some people where he was. And this was, this was uh, um, you know, part of, of, of who he was. You know, my wife's grandfather was, a, was an Altamira in Shanghai, and he, he told me that in the Mira in Shanghai, the guy was Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. He was very close to Reb Chaim Shmulevitz and. After the war, Reb Lezir Finkel uh, made an appeal to the alumni of the yeshiva 
who were there in the, the yeshiva in Poland, in Shanghai, who lived in the United States, he made an appeal to them that alumni of the Mir Yeshiva should set aside $10 a month uh, for the Mir Yeshiva as a donation, 1950s, 60s, 70s. And my wife's grandfather did that, and he would uh, put it off to the side, and every couple of years he would come to visit uh, Israel. He'd have either $120 or $240. He would set aside, and the first time he came, he brought it to the Rashiva of Chaim, to Chaim Shmulevitz, who he knew. He knew him from Shanghai. Rabbeinish wasn't in Shanghai. Rabbeinish came to uh, Eretz Yisrael in 1941 together with his father. And, um, and, and the Rabbeinish says, I don't deal with money. You have to go to Rabbeinish. He said, who's Rabbeinish? Rabbeinish is a Rashiva. You'll get to know him. And he said, he told me, he said he got to know him. He said they were, became good friends. He said he was an amazing guy. He welcomed him in. And he, he got to know him, and from then on, they became very close. He said that every time he came to Israel for a visit, Rabbeinish would insist that he eat by him a Shabbos meal, and that way they maintained a very good relationship. In fact, by the Kaisel Vasikin minion, so Meyer Birnbaum, the legendary Lieutenant Birnbaum, relates that he used to drive Rabbeinish. He actually became very close with him um, over the years. He used to drive him every morning. Uh, and uh, one time, Rebbe, uh, Re- Meyer Birnbaum mentioned to Rabbeinish that he's flying off to for a, some sort of trip to family or business, whatever it was. And uh, he's heading, he, when, when he dropped, he drops him off, he's heading to the airport. So Rabbeinish says, do you eat breakfast yet? So he said, no, but I'm rushing to my flight. He says, no, 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 you can't go off to the airport without coming to eat breakfast. Come up to my house. I went up to his house. Rabbeinish lived deep in Manish Arm on 11th Slonim Street. He actually lived above um, Rebetzin Yafin, the daughter of the altar of Navardik. They called her Dermuma. She was the late uh, widow of Rebavram Yafin, the son-in-law and Rosh Hashiva of, son-in-law of the altar of Navardik and the Rosh Hashiva of Navardik. And he used to help her out a lot. Actually, he would come and fix her, her appliances when she needed help. He would literally take care of her. He would drop in every, every couple, uh, a couple of times every day to see how she's doing and make sure she has everything she needs. And uh, so he lived on 11 Slonim. And he, so he brings Meyer Birnbaum up and he makes him a coffee. And he, and he, uh, he says, you have to have something to eat with the coffee. Epis abyssal mezainus. You have to have some mezainus to eat with him. And he couldn't find any ragalach or cake or anything else. But he found frozen knedlach, frozen matzah balls in his freezer. So he says, here, you have abyssal mezainus. And he gives them to him. And this, Poor guy is rushing to catch his flight and he has to eat these frozen knedlach together with his coffee. He figured out how to do it. He dunked them into the hot coffee and, and that, that was his breakfast. But he would, um, but uh, Rabbeinish was, um, he was, his son-in-law, Nachal Lvovitz, told me that when you hung around his father-in-law, Rabbeinish, Yiddishkeit was exciting. It, it wasn't a boring thing. You're you running to the Kaisel, you're going here, you're going there. He was always very busy, always a lot of fun. He was, he was a, a, a light personality, someone who loved life and loved people and loved helping people also. He, he was close in his youth. He learned in a few places, he learned in Radin by the Chavitz Chaim, also learned in the Mir, obviously, but he was also close with the Briskarov. Briskarov held him in high esteem. He happened to, Rabbeinish was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was a guy who knew quite a bit, and also big master, and he used to hide his learning. He wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, show anyone when he was learning. He always hid it. He, 
would hide a, he would hide um, hide it from other people. He would learn late at night and early in the morning when people weren't around. In fact, in the morning, remember he davens vasikin at the kaisel. So he has to get from Eshar to the kaisel. Before Vasikin, he did something that, to the best of my knowledge, almost no other Litvisher Rosh Hashiva did. He would go to the mikveh every morning. And before that, he would learn for a few hours. So, I mean, he's starting the morning quite early. And um, he was a big Talmud Chacham, but the, in the Briskarov held him in high esteem. And this is ready from his youth. He learned by the Briskarov. Now, legend has it, I've never been able to verify this story if it's true, but either way, it brings out a little bit of his personality, even if it's not true. But a legend has it that when he originally went to the Briskarov, he didn't tell him his name. He didn't want to get preferential treatment, which is what, the way he was. He made up some name. He's not Finkel. He's whatever it was. Uh, I don't know. Kuperschmidt. He made up some name that he was. And at one point, Reblazy Yudelfinkel, his father, met the Briskarov. They were friends. And he said, how's my son, Banish? He's learning by you. How's he doing? So he said, your son? I don't have any Finkels learning by me. I don't know. This is back in, in Brisk, in Poland still. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. So Reblazy Yudelfinkel starts describing when he came. What does he look like? What does he talk like? What is this? What is this? And finally, it dawns on the brisk grove that he's not talking that, that, that the whole thing, that it's really Kuperschmidt, it's not Finkel. So it dawns on him. So he goes, ah, du meinst Kuperschmidt. Kuperschmidt learned good. You mean Kuperschmidt. Kuperschmidt is learning good. I think that's more of a story about the brisk grove than about Rabanish, about the idea that even after he finds out that it's Rabanish and that it's a Finkel, but he still says Kuperschmidt learned good because that's who he is. That's what he told me he is. In fact, to continue that legend, there's a second half of that legend, which again, never been able to verify if it's true, but allegedly this is the story of Rabbeinish. Um, when he came to Eretz Yisrael, and he comes, with, like I said, with his father in 1941, Lez escapes Europe with two of his sons. His son-in-law, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, goes with the Mir to Shanghai. Another son, Reb Chaim Zev Finkel, who was, to, who was to become the Mashgiach of the Mir Yeshiva, was already living in Eretz Yisrael, at the time, he had become with the with his grandfather, the Alter Slobatka in Chevron, many many years earlier, about fifteen years earlier, sixteen years earlier, and Rabbeinish and Rabbeisha Finkel went with their father Rabbeisiudel when he escaped Europe. There's another son of Rabbi Meir Finkel who stayed in Warsaw, and he was killed in Treblinka by the Nazis. But um, Rabbeinish comes to Israel at the time, and and uh, he, that's that's also the time that he. Who gets to know the Chazayin Ish, who makes his Shidduch. We'll get to that in a second. But he also goes back to learning by the Briskarov. The Briskarov didn't want any, when he came to Israel, he didn't want any outsiders learning by him. He, he had enough. He was getting old. He was, he, uh, he didn't want outsiders there. So originally, so, but he had to teach, he's a Brisker, he, the Briskarov, he had to teach his children Tyra. It's a mitzvah to teach your children Tyra. So he, he sat around this dining room and he gave a shear to his sons. That's what the Briskarov started to do. And that's how the dining room comes into the Brisker story. So he would lock the door to make sure that no outsiders came in. One day the Briskarov comes in to give the shear and he turns to lock the door and there's no key in the door. Key is missing. Okay, he's not going to start looking for the key. He sits down to give the shear. And the way the story goes is that all of a sudden, the door opens, Rabbeinish walks in, again, he's still single, and he's holding a chair, 
and he puts down the chair, takes the key out of his pocket, locks the door, and comes and sits down by the brisk rubs. <laughs> Here you had this outsider who came in and joined, and that's how eventually outsiders were able to come in, and eventually from that evolved into the brisk yeshiva. So there's, if the story is true, which again, I have no good uh, source for it, but if the story is true, then once again, the brisk yeshiva has to, owes the mir their entire existence, but that's nothing new anyway. But either way, he gets sent by his father. The mir yeshiva was in Kuba, Japan, and there was a question about the international dateline, which is a fascinating story, which I'm not going to get into now. It's a whole, uh, a whole saga of, of, of what day to keep Shabbos, and they were scared they might be there Yom Kippur, so what day to keep Yom Kippur? And the question was sent to Rebbe Yudel, who was, who was uh, um, you know, their Rosh Hashiva, who is now living in Eretz Yisrael, and he brings it to Rav Herzog, and the chief rabbi, and other rabbis who were living in Eretz Yisrael, and eventually it also comes to the Chazayin Ish. Mr. Zalman was involved, also a lot of the big rabbis in Eretz Yisrael were involved at the time, and it comes to the Chazayin Ish, and and the one who brought it to the Chazanish, Rebbe sent his son Rebbeinish. And that's when the Chazanish got to know Rebbeinish. And the Chazanish was at that time raising his niece. The Chazanish did not have any children of his own, but his sister was married to Shmuel Greinemann, who at that time was living in America. He was working in Ramesha Feinstein's yeshiva. He at one point worked for Radin yeshiva. Now he was working for Ramesha Feinstein's yeshiva, MTJ, on the Lower East Side. And he lived there with his wife and a couple of his younger children, but who later became Representative Esther Finkel, then she was Esther Greinemann, she was brought up by her uncle, the Chazanish. In fact, I was privileged to know Representative Esther Finkel, who just died a couple of years ago. She was sick a few years before she died, but when I was still a young Bacher in the mirror, she was still very much with it, and she was an amazing person. She was... Uh, very involved in a communal activist. She was one of the first people to to have um, build strong connections in the medical field, like a real askin, or I guess a askanit, a female askin, uh, um, in the in helping with medical referrals. And she built an amazing network and helped literally thousands of people. An amazing person, and also uh, carried a lot of the yeshiva on her shoulders together with her husband and later her son-in-law. Nereshiva Rebbesen Svi. She was a, a very impressive person, but she grew up in the Chazanish's house. I would once in a while, I would schmooze with her every once in a while and ask her for stories about the Chazanish. And I remember she was a little sharp. She I once asked her on Pesach. I was there uh, by which she stayed by her daughter Batzion Karlbach Rebbesen Batzion Karlbach Rebbeim Karlbach's wife. Also, you know, an interesting name. Rebbesen Karlbach was born when Rebbeinish was abroad. And he, he, he sent that his, they should name her Batzion, which is not exactly a typical yeshivish name for a son of, uh, excuse me, a daughter of a yeshiva. And, and, um, but, you know, he felt that he's missing Tzion at that time when he was abroad. And, uh, he had her named, uh, Batzion, the daughter of Zion. In any event, so she, so she, the, the Rebbe Sinesta Finkel lived by their house. And, uh, and I asked her, it was Pesach, I asked her, uh, you grew up by the Chazanish. Did the Chazanish eat only hand matzah, or did he also eat machine matzah? Because on one hand, the Chazanish was very well known as a machmir, very stringent in a lot of Jewish law, which maybe he would eat only hand matzah, like the, like the briskers or Hasidim or Hungarians. On the other hand, he lived in Vilna for many years, 
where Chaim Moiser Grzynski and the other Rabbanim in Vilna, they all ate only machine matzah. In fact, Chaim Moiser pretty much didn't have any hand matzah bakeries open in Vilna during his uh, during that time. So, so I was curious what where the Chazanish stood on that. And she refused to answer the question, which I subsequently found out Chazanish only ate hand matzah. But listen to how she answered. She says to me, Not everything that the Chazanish did, did he mean, did he intend that other people should do. In other words, don't go and just copy the Chazanish, whatever he did. He never made a psak about it. He never told his students or his family to do it. And you don't have to just copy him and just because he did something and he might have taken on something as a personal chumrah. And that was a big lesson for me about someone who grew up in the Chazanish's house and about how to behave. Um, he, 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 so the, the, back to the story with the, um, with the uh, Chazanish. So he, the Chazanish uh, raises this niece of his, and he's impressed with Rabbeinish, so he marries them off. He makes the Shidduch, and uh, Rabbeinish ends up living in B'nai Brak for many, many years. He lives there for well over 20 years, until his father, Rabbeinu Zidofinkel, died in 1965. He lived in B'nai Brak. In fact, in the early years of B'nai Brak, he, was, he, he refused to, one of his things his entire life, he never took a salary from yeshiva, he never, he always, he never talked about where he got the money for yeshiva from or how he supported his own family. Everything he did with money was kept very secret and very, very strict about not taking money from yeshiva, but yeshiva's money is holy and I'm not benefiting at all from it. And even as a salary, anything. And he, in the early years, those early years, he was actually a night watchman in an ice factory at the edge of B'nai Brak, uh, living in poverty. Um, but this way he's making, uh, he's making it on his own and he's not taking any support even from his parents and in-laws. Um, and that's, that's the way he did things. Um, even when he was the Rosh Hashiva, later on he hid his greatness from anyone. There's a story about a Talmud who came to get acceptance. He went up to Rehov Slanim 11 where the where Rebbeinish lived, lived and the door was slightly ajar. And he looked inside and Rebbeinish was learning from a Gemara in, in, his, in, his, um, in his shirt sleeves by his table. So he knocks on the door, and then he sees through the slightly open door, and Rabbeinish didn't realize that he was looking, it was slightly open, and he sees that Rabbeinish closes his Gemara, he takes out the newspaper, the story does not specify which newspaper it was, which I'd be curious about, but either way it was a newspaper, and he opens it up, and he says, come in. And he says, yes, what can I do for you? He said, I'm a Talmud, I came to get accepted to yeshiva. So he says, oh, if you came accepted to yeshiva, so I have to become a Rosh Yeshiva now. And he says, okay, so if you, I become a Rosh Yeshiva, so I can't be reading a newspaper. So he closes the newspaper, and he takes out a Gemara, and he opens the Gemara, and then he goes to the, to the closet, and he takes out his frock, and he puts on his frock. And he says, "Yet's binicha Rosh Hashiva. Now I'm a Rosh Hashiva. Now I could come accept you." And he, it was a way of doing things that you know made you know put a, put down the whole the whole shtick. You know, he didn't like he didn't like uh, the the fakery and the covet and the honor. People would try to open the door for him. He one time stopped someone who was opening the car door for him. He said, "Why are you opening the door? I know how to open the door myself." 
So he says, no, no, it's a mitzvah to open the door for the Rosh Hashiva. So he says, ah, they, it's a mitzvah to open up the door for the Rosh Hashiva. So ich will eich ton mitzvah. I also want to do a mitzvah. So let me open the door. Um, that's, uh, that's the style he was. He was, he was a people's person. He was a regular person. He liked being like that. The few times that he did go to America to fundraise, he, I even saw a video of his. He started, I mean, what he did for the mirror, again, talk about how much of a Talmud Chacham he was and how much of a, a you know, modest person he was and how hidden he was. But look what he did, what he did for the mirror, the growth, the phenomenal growth and the fundraising apparatus. No one was very clear about where he got the money from and how he arranged it. And, 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 and he was, he was just very honest uh, about the, the money dealings. But he also started the mirror dinner. Um, he went in for a few times, a couple of times for the mirror dinner. He put a lot of the system in place. But, and I even saw a video of him speaking at one of the first mirror dinners or parlor meetings or some sort of event. You could tell he even looks uncomfortable. You know, his son-in-law, Nachman Lord, told me that he didn't like the whole showy business of playing up to people to get money. He was, it was against his whole personality. He loved people for being, for who they were. He loved people. He loved Eden. He was, had a natural friendliness to him. And the idea that I'm talking to someone to get money out of them was just foreign to his whole, uh, persona. Um, he was looking to expand the yeshiva. He was even looking to get new buildings. Uh, um, he sent his son-in-law uh, to go on an excursion to look into buildings nearby the yeshiva to try to see if they would be possible to buy something that only happened after after he died with his uh, his son-in-law, the yeshiva of Nassim Svi. And uh, interesting, um, interesting story. I um, When he was younger, he his brother, his older brother, Chaim Zevfinkel, who was a mashgiach in the yeshiva, got sick. He eventually died young, and he was in America for treatments. And Urbanish actually came to America for several months to be with his brother. Already he was a grown man, already involved in the yeshiva, already had a family. And here he came to be with his brother for three months. And he lived, he stayed in the famous legendary United States Army chaplain, Herschel Schachter, not, not to be confused with the Rosh Hashiva today, Rabbi Yitzchak Khanan, this, this, uh, this other Rabbi Herschel, I think it was Schachter, or, or Schachter, whatever it was, in the Bronx, he was a rabbi also, and he was a chaplain of the U.S. Army, very famous, involved in the liberation of Buchenwald, and helping the uh, survivors rehabilitate themselves after the war, a very famous personality, had lived a very long life, and and uh, and in a well-known story, the Rabbeinish stayed in his house, in this in this Rabbi Shachter's house, for three months when he was helping his brother. And the family of, of Rabbi Shachter described it as living with an angel. I mean, the, the mother of the family was an early riser, and she described no matter how early she got up, Rabbeinish was up much earlier, already learning, already getting ready to daven. Um, it, was, it was a special atmosphere to have Rabbeinish around the house. Now, interestingly uh, enough, he is a a um, um, he was like I said, a, he had a, a very good sense of humor. And another son-in-law of his, Rabbi Glustein, uh, told me a great story, um, a great line saying of his that um, about the yeshiva schedule. I was once discussing with Rabbi Glustein about you know the yeshiva davens so early Shabbos morning because they have to make the earlier time for Kriyashma, the Magen Avram's time for Kriyashma. So Rabbi Glustein told me that his shver of Vanish complained about that also, and he said to him once, he said, he said, I don't understand this Yerushalmi thing. 
This said, this Rabbeinish told Rabbi Rabbeinish said to him, back in Europe, we did nothing like the Gain. We never did Minhag Hagra. We never did anything like the Vilna Gain. We did the regular Litvishim and Hagim that we, that we always had in Lithuania. We never did anything like the Vilna Gain. There's one thing we did like the Gain. We davened Kriya Shema late, according to the Vilna Gain's time for davening Shema. That's what we did, like the Gain. He said, I come to your Shalayim, and it's exactly the opposite. Everything is minigagro, 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 the custom of the Vilna Gain. What's the one thing they don't do like the Gain? You have to daven Kriya early, like the Magan of Ram, not the Gain. I don't understand these people. That was what he said to him. And in fact, one of the best stories I ever heard about the about Rabbeinish was told to me by the uh, Mashgiach of the Mir Yeshiva, Rabbein Chadash. May he live and be well. He's a Mashgiach who served under five or six or seven, I can't even remember how many Mir Yeshiva is the Mashgiach uh, for well over 50 years. And he was very, very close to the Rabbeinish. He worked very well with him. He told me on several occasions that he worked very well with him. And he told me this story, absolutely great story. This happened in the early days, I think it was the 1950s or 60s, where the elderly Talmidim, the students of, of the altar of Slabatka, used to make gatherings on the altar's yard site in, in like Tel Aviv or Petach Tikva, where a lot of the Talmidim lived. The original one uh, uh, meetings, you know, Gyaretzet gatherings were organized by... Um, Rabbi Yisrael Zisel Dvorch, a very famous Slobodka Talmud and Askin, and very involved in Move to Chevron and other, other things. Interesting personality. There's a nice biography of him. And, he, and, and they had this gathering of, and the senior Talmudim would get up and speak about Musar, about Godless Ha'adam, about the legacy of the altar of Slobodka. And it would be a nice gathering. Now, Rabbeinish wasn't, you know, he was like, very much like the personality of the altar in many ways. He wasn't exactly what we would call the Slabatka Bal Musr Talmud of his grandfather. There were other people who were, let's say, more like that than Rabbeinish, although he, of course, was a, you know, a, a, definitely a, a follower of, of Musr and, and all that of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of his father, his grandfather. But uh, he's there, but he attends. It's in honor of his grandfather's memory, so he always attended, Rabbeinish attended. So at the end of the gathering, at the end of the evening, after all the shmuzin and all the chizik and all the inspiration about the altar and about Musar, so the the um, the Rebchatzkel Sarna, one of the closest and greatest Talmud of the Alta Slobatka, who is the Rashiva in Hebron, he gets up and says, he wanted to summarize the evening, he says, after all said and done, we should come out with something lemaisa, something practical. And that's an important thing, idea in Musr in general, and especially Slabatka Musr. So that's what he wanted. So the so Rabbeinish calls out from the back of the room, Lamaisa, Lamar Davin in Myriv. Let's Davin Myriv. That's something Lamaisa. And that was a classic Rabbeinish line. And Rabchaskal Sarno was a real Slabatka. He got very upset. He said, He ruined the atmosphere. He took it out away. He made a late sonus. He made a joke out of it. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's how Rabchaskal Sarno was. So I, I was laughing when I heard the story, and I asked the Mashkiach, I said, who do you think was right? Which is, you know, a touchy question, because the Mashkiach, on one hand, was a real Chevroner, a real Slabatker. His father, the mayor Chadash, was the Mashkiach in Chevron for many years. On the other hand, Rabbeinish was his boss, was his employer, was the one who he worked with for many years in his capacity as the Mashkiach and the Mir Yeshiva. 
And he said to him, showing his true colors, the Mashgiach said, it's Pashit that Reb Chatzkel was right. It's obvious that Reb Chatzkel Sarna was right, and Reb Benish was out of line. But that's what Reb Benish was. You want something, Lamaisa? Let's daven Meirim. So that's, uh, that's another story. He was a master at helping people. He used to... He used to uh, sometimes, again, beneath the dignity of, of anyone who's elderly or prestigious, but especially someone like the Mira Shiva, he would sometimes help his neighbors, other poor people nearby with, with simple things, with fixing their appliances, with going up and, you know, uh, you know tutoring their children who needed help, literally going out of his way in, a play, in ways that you never expected um uh, someone like him to do. Um, when he was sick, he it was already in his later years. He was dying. He was close to close to the time of he would, you know his passing, and the, the, someone asked him if they should add a name. Um, you know, it's customary sometimes if someone is sick as a merit to get help him feel better. They add a name. So he said, "Should we add a name?" He says, "They already added a name to me. They started calling me Rosh Shiva a few, you know, twenty five years ago." As uh, again, his uh, his way of his way of seeing it. Now, as um, he befriended anyone who he anyone who he knew, um, anyone who knew him had a had a love for him. But even the ones who knew him and were close with him, it was hard to really get down to what he was all about. He kept himself very very hidden. There's obviously. Uh, many more stories. Again, we'll have to wait, I guess, for next year's yard site. This is just a little taste of a little bit about Rabbeinish. And uh, this was Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and tours and trips to places of interest of Jewish history. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.